Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise. This podcast is actually an audiobook, so it won't make a lot of sense if you're just jumping in right now. What I recommend you do is start at the beginning and listen through chronologically. But that's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> if you want to jump around, <laughs> you know, you do you. All right. Uh, speaking of jumping, let's jump in. Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise, Chapter 18, Giving Thanks. It wasn't that this veterinary didn't like animals. I think he didn't like himself. And when that is so, the subject usually must find an area for dislike outside himself, else he would have to admit his self-contempt. John Steinbeck, from Travels with Charlie. Big Frank let me sleep as long as I wanted, and I felt like an enchanted bed fairy when I finally stumbled into the land of the living. I hope you're hungry, sleeping beauty, he said. I'm making us breakfast. It's almost dinner time, I murmured. Who cares, he replied. Fair enough, I said. We spent the remaining daylight hours mutually nourishing each other. Big Frank was the most assured, intuitive, and dominant lover I'd ever encountered. Plus, he could cook? I mean, he could really cook. Was there anything this man couldn't do? Now I know that men like you exist, I said, patting my full belly. I can be poised and ready to find more of your kind. Oh, he chuckled. You got frequent flyer miles, baby girl. As Big Frank showered, I arranged a date in the city later that evening with an adorable Aussie. I texted Madeline to let her know I'd be playing in the Manhattan area for a while longer and not to worry if I wasn't home for a few days. If you told me last month that this is where I'd be today, I thought, shaking my head. No, little Jack hadn't turned out to be the lifeline I thought he might have been. But he'd played precisely the role he needed to in my journey, and I said a little prayer of thanks to him for inadvertently opening the door to what was now my present tense life. Maybe the sex-positive creature I was clearly becoming would play a part in my eventual livelihood? And maybe it wouldn't. I cast out the thread into the golden ocean and trusted, as always, that the line would tug if it was meant to. I'm going to head back to the city, I told Big Frank, breathless from a post-shower orgasm. You sure about that? He said, and brought me to climax again. I'm going to head back to the city, I told Big Frank, breathless from a post-orgasm orgasm. Okay, if you insist, he said, but don't lose my number. I like you. I like me, too, I teased. Traffic was terrible at the station, and Big Frank apologized for not driving me all the way into Manhattan. I think the train will be faster anyway, especially with all this holiday traffic, he said. Oh, right, I remembered. Thanksgiving is this week. It occurred to me that I would be doing this holiday as non-traditionally as I'd been doing everything else, and I was okay with that. Well, Big Frank, I said, leaning over and giving him a big hug and a kiss. I can't thank you enough. Let's not forget to thank Paul, he laughed. And I'm proud of you, baby, for taking your sexual blinders off. Strange, I reflected silently. I thought I had taken my sexual blinders off when I dated Little Jack. But I guess I hadn't. Or I hadn't all the way. Or I had all the way in that particular way and was learning again how to take them off anew. I felt humbled. I gave Big Frank a final squeeze. My friends, do you know that feeling when you say goodbye to a person and you're positive you'll never see that person again? Well, this was not one of those times. <laughs> Big Frank was already in my heart, and my crystal ball hinted that we would know each other for a good long while. Spoiler alert, 
I was right. We agreed to stay in touch as we said goodbye. Then I caught the train back to the city and decided I wanted to stay in Manhattan for as long as I could. For free. The runaway bag only needed a few small additions if I wanted to live comfortably for a few more days, and my wanderlust was guiding me toward more adventures. But after the Paul debacle slash lesson, I knew I had to be more specific with my manifestation. Therefore, I asked outright. I updated my dating app profiles to announce to potential lovers that I could only meet up if they were willing to shelter me, even if we didn't hit it off and even if I didn't want to fuck them. These were my terms, and they were non-negotiable. Aren't you being a little demanding? warned a calculated voice within me. Yes, I argued back, but nobody is being forced to do anything they don't want to do. If they don't feel comfortable with the arrangement, they aren't in any way obligated to go on a date. But, I continued internally, if nobody wants to commit to sheltering me, at least I'll know ahead of time and can head back to Poughkeepsie while the trains are still running. As it happened... Two separate gentlemen agreed to my terms, which afforded me the privilege of adventure-gasming through Manhattan for three spectacular days. The first man to shelter me, sex or no sex, was, as I've mentioned, the Australian real estate agent who I met after parting ways with Big Frank. We met at a tapas bar near his apartment, then headed back to his place. The Aussie was visibly intrigued by me, but also comfortable in his own skin. I liked the way he looked at me, almost awestruck, and the way he asked me questions about how I came to be so confident. I liked the way he shared vulnerable details about his own journey without clinging onto his own melancholy. As we crept closer and closer to the other in the living room of his Tribeca apartment, he excused himself to put on some soft lighting and a Solange album. It wasn't long before I excused myself to put on my fishnets. That night, we shared a bed but we also shared something deeper, a heart-to-heart connection that felt like kinship and mutual trust. I'd consummated another ally. The other man who agreed to my terms was a young, pompous Stanford grad who spent the entirety of the following evening trying to enlighten me as to how the world worked. According to him, human nature was to blame in the matter of people treating other people in terrible ways— In the corporate world, that's just how it works. Dog eat dog, money talks, and bullshit walks. In the beginning, I tried to interject. The world is whatever we make it, I started. I actually watched a friend die not too long ago, and I learned some pretty powerful things about what's really important. Yeah, but good feelings won't pay the bills, he continued. It won't put a roof over your head, like the one you've already asked me to share with you. He had me there. We were certainly living within a system that demanded allegiance. Even people like me who were trying to push against that system were dependent on those who played by its rules. He was playing by the rules and I was not. And it seemed to me like this had allowed him to establish in his own mind that I had nothing to offer. He was the boss, or so he thought, and he behaved accordingly. Maya Angelou has reminded us to believe people when they show us who they are. Quote, the first time. So I gave up on trying to be heard by the young lawyer and tried my very best to choose gratitude for the shelter he would ultimately share. His company is the price you have to pay for his roof, my deepest heart reminded me. Not, quote, free, but still worth it, I reminded myself. Over the course of those days I had to play in Manhattan, I visited museums, walked the High Line, rediscovered the Angelica Theater— and learned even more than I already knew about the spectrum of human relationships. 
On a day date at the bar of the Whitney Museum of American Art, one fellow confessed that he was married. But I could get us a hotel room right now and we could sneak away, he said, in what I can only imagine was an attempt to seduce me. Well, I don't think that's going to work for me because uh, I'm not a prostitute, for starters, I said. And as far as you being married goes, I'm not really down to play that game. I've already done all the hard work of disentangling myself from marriage and monogamy. It sounds like you still have some work to do. In the meantime, I am not comfortable with this going any further. I was open and honest with you from the beginning. You were not. He looked stunned. Well, I just thought, I mean... I drove down from the Poconos to meet you. I came all this way. It was a two-hour drive. Damn it, I shouldn't have even said anything about being married. Uh, I'm flattered that you made the effort to meet me, I said, but honestly, that drive time is on you. As for not telling me you're married, I mean, I hope that's not the lesson you're gleaning from this experience. That would just make you a liar all around. I'm glad you told me so I can make an informed decision. And my decision is no. I don't want to be that person. But, he stammered, but you seemed so open-minded. You said you were non-monogamous. I am non-monogamous, I said, trying to keep my cool. But I still get to choose who I want to spend time with and who I don't. And right now, buddy, I'd rather go upstairs and look at some Edward Hopper than continue to argue with you about boundaries. Thanks for the drink. I started to pack up, but this motherfucker was relentless. Look, he said almost desperately, I usually don't play this card, but I used to be a model. I'm not used to not getting what I want. Okay, I said, neat. (laughs) I looked at him blankly. He looked at me imploringly. The answer is still no, I said. Go in peace. I grabbed my runaway bag, caught the elevator, and immersed myself in the therapeutic company of art. I was ten minutes into exploring some early experimentation with color copying machines, still shaking my head over what had just happened, when I felt a tap on my shoulder. Holy shit! It was the guy! What was it going to take for him to get the message? Look, he said, I just wanted to apologize. Oh, okay, well, that was a good start. I'm not in the best headspace, he continued, and I had worked myself up about something that obviously wasn't going to happen. I could have handled myself a lot better down there. I'm sorry. I hope you don't think I'm the worst person in the whole world. No, of course not, I said. Thanks for following up. Any chance you want company now, he asked. He seemed humbled. I considered the offer for a moment. No thanks, I finally said. I think I'd rather spend this time on my own. But I really appreciate the apology. We're all human. I've done things I'm not proud of, for sure. All we can do is continue to learn from the moments when we aren't at our best and hopefully become better people because of it. Okay, I understand, he said, and I agree. For what it's worth, I think you're one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Then he left. Ah, humans. I didn't blame the fellow for craving sexual satisfaction. That would be like blaming a hungry man for craving food. We have built ourselves into these untenable boxes, and even as we live unhappily within them— We're eager to throw stones at anyone who tries to break out. My rejected suitor was hearing the survival call of his deepest chakra and trying to heed it without breaking out of his untenable box. Poor guy. By the afternoon of my third day in the city, I was worn out and ready to recharge at my nearest home base. I meandered my way back to Grand Central and hopped a train bound for Poughkeepsie. 
Upon arrival, I let myself into the house, said hello to whoever was home, grabbed a magazine from the Paget's ever-engaging pile of reading material, and collapsed like a sunshine soldier home from non-violent battle on my bed upstairs. The Time magazine cover that had garnered my attention featured the, quote, new, mindful movement, and was full of articles about how meditation may be as beneficial as all those yogis have been saying for centuries. Well, that sure feels like confirmation I'm on the right track, I thought. There was a short feature of a Tony meditation center in Manhattan called Mindful, and I laughed at the likelihood that I had passed within a few blocks of one of its branches in the last few days. Eventually, I showered and reconnected with the village. Madeline was home from work, and Leah was back from a long bike ride. The tenants joined in for dinner, and we all discussed our upcoming Thanksgiving plans. Madeline would be meeting up with her extended family. Leah would be driving with a few college buddies down to Washington, D.C. Their primary mission was to see the Giants play the Redskins, and their secondary mission was to visit Leo's uncle, aunt, and cousins. I confessed to the group that I had no plans, except to stay happily put as a house-sitter, and, as always, find ways to keep myself busy. The next morning, Leo asked if I was interested in joining him and his friends, a married couple, for their D.C. trip. I asked if his mom had put him up to it, or if he was including me out of some sideways guilt, but he finally admitted his motivation— So I know you're not a big drinker, he said. Maybe if you came with us, you wouldn't mind being the designated driver, he continued tentatively. I mean, we'll cover your ticket and all that. Well, sure, I said with gusto. I've never been to a professional American football game before. Okay, great, he said. But I have to ask, why do you always say American football? Well, because everywhere else in the world, football is the game you play with your feet, and American football is the game you play for concussions. But we're in America, he said. And, I argued. Okay then, so you're in? Totally, I said. I was happy to crash Thanksgiving in the name of being a useful chauffeur. Was it even considered crashing if I was invited? When we picked up Leo's boisterous friends the next day, I felt like an accomplished time traveler. More than a decade after my own graduation, I was living a borrowed college experience. Group road trip. The two in the back bickered and laughed and interrupted each other's stories often. Leo interjected occasionally to correct details or to ask, Remember that time? And his complimentary quietness was like the yin to their yang. The drive was long and full of chatter, and I drove most, that is all, of the way. This I hadn't expected. I knew I was needed for the American football game, but I assumed we would all be taking turns behind the wheel during the long leg to Washington. The driving situation didn't feel quite right to me at the time, but I promised myself I'd speak up if I ever felt in need of a break. As soon as we arrived, Marshall's brother and his wife welcomed each of us like family. Leo's uncle looked so much like Marshall from certain angles that I found my eyes getting watery. Admission, this was way better than picking my toes in Poughkeepsie. The next day, I called my kids to wish them Happy Thanksgiving. I mean, there's more to it than the rosy story of happy indigenous people and happy European settlers, I reminded them. The white guys definitely couldn't have survived without the help of the Indians. And what did the settlers give in return? Genocide! My kids were silent. They were accustomed to my outbursts. Anyway, I continued, we can be thankful today for sure, but we should really be thankful every day. And we shouldn't ignore the horrible fucking ways that Indians were treated and continue to be treated. Mom, they cried in unison, that's an F-bomb. 
I know, I know, it's a mama word, you're right, but what I'm saying is true. It's a really shameful part of American history. You can love your country, but also be willing to admit its mistakes. Remember that. And happy Thanksgiving. I love you, boys. Okay, happy Thanksgiving, Mom. Love you. Bye. After I had hung up, I garnered the strength to reach out to my mom. I asked if she'd had a chance to check out that Gangaji link I'd sent her. No, it wasn't working, she said in a way that made it sound like she was half listening, half scrolling Facebook. Okay, I'll try to figure it out. I mean, if you're interested, I said. Of course I'm interested, she said. But I had my doubts. Happy Thanksgiving, honey. Well, not for the Indians, but yeah, I get it. Happy Thanksgiving. Tell Jeepa and everyone I say hello. Will do, she said. Love you. Love you too. I hung up, then joined the extended pageant network for the traditional abundance of turkey and stuffing and green bean casserole. I offered to help wash the dishes, was denied, then joined the group hustling out to see the American football game. This would be my first NFL experience, and I was kind of excited to do a thing I'd never done before. But I'm not going to go into details of how the Giants lost to the Redskins that day, or how institutional racism is so embedded in American culture that an official NFL team can still call themselves the Redskins with impunity, or could in 2017. Or my discovery that an important component of spectator sports is shit-talking, or that most people really do seem to need booze in order to unbutton their inhibitions. I'm not going to speak more of any of those things because the most important event of the whole trip was what happened in the car on the way back from the game. It was dark, and my passengers, who had been drinking all day, were verifiably drunk. Adding insult to injury, their team was defeated. The husband of the pair spat a few final insults to whatever... Uh, Redskins fans, he passed on our way to the car, but the pomp that had puffed up his chest upon arrival had been leaking out since it had become clear the Giants were going to lose. We survived the parking lot congestion without a lot of chit-chat, but as we hit the road, gaining speed in an unknown direction, I realized I needed urgent instruction. Washington, D.C. was unknown territory to me, though I knew something about the Beltway being a giant circle and that it was easy to get confused about whether to drive the loop clockwise or counterclockwise. It was my pleasure to drive. It's why I had been invited, after all. But I needed help navigating. I asked Leo, who was in the passenger seat, where to go. He mumbled something about multiple routes, and I asked him again, "Okay, but can you just pick one and tell me where to go? Again, he didn't answer me directly, and I missed what I suspected was our exit. Look, Leo, I said firmly, it doesn't matter to me which route we take home. Can you please just navigate? I'll do my part, but I need you to do your part. From the back seat, the drunken friend upbraided me. God, you don't have to boss him around like that, he said. Excuse me? I said, affronted. You're a real bossy bitch, you know that? He said, no wonder you don't have a husband. Oh my God, was this guy fucking kidding me? I felt like I'd been hit in the gut. Who the fuck was this asshole? What the fuck did he know about me and my life and my personal history and the tender patch that was the recent end of my 15-year marriage? I tried to take a deep breath and be my best self. I tried to anchor to my palace of peace. I tried to remind myself that this man was a glowing gob of godlight just like the rest of us. But the anger got to my mouth first. I'd be embarrassed to be your wife. I said coldly. 
What I meant by this was that if my husband had talked to a woman in the way this fellow had just talked to me and in my presence, I would feel painfully ashamed. But, of course, his wife was the fourth passenger in the car, and I realized suddenly that I had been accidentally cruel to her. I felt terrible immediately. Please, just tell me where to go, I said to Leo. The biting exchange had snuffed out whatever energy remained in the car, and we made it home without speaking another word. It took me a long time to fall asleep on my sofa bed that night as I mentally projected the protracted, uncomfortable drive that lay ahead the next day. I didn't particularly want to shuttle around an ungrateful asshole, and I knew I couldn't expect an apology. What was the right thing to do? My deepest heart knew right away, but I wasn't willing to listen quite yet. Because that dick had started it. What he said was way worse than what I said. But you know that's not the deepest truth, said my deepest heart. I wanted to tell my deepest heart to fuck right off. The next morning, I was friendly and cordial with Leo's family. They had a breakfast buffet spread like they did breakfast for a living. I thanked them again for letting me tag along at the last minute, and they assured me it was no trouble. As we all packed up the car, I told Leo and his friends that it seemed fair for someone else to drive. They acted somewhat taken aback, but Leo stepped up and got in the driver's seat. Now that I think about it, he was probably Fifty Shades of Green. About 20 minutes into the drive, I knew what I had to do. I'd known all along in reality. I took a deep breath and turned toward the back seat. Look, I'm sorry about what I said yesterday. I was angry and hurt, but that doesn't justify being hurtful. So, I'm sorry. There, I'd done it. My deepest heart sat back and beamed like a proud mama. So there, I'd done my work, which is all we can ever do. Yeah, I'm sorry too, said a chastised voice from behind me. I shouldn't have said that last night about your husband or anything. You're a really nice person. Wait, hold the press. Was this for real? I had had exactly zero expectation of such a thing happening, and yet here it was, a golden gift. What a surprise! What a confirmation! Apologygasm! That's how you break the cycle, said my deepest heart. Everything felt immediately better in the whole car, as if someone had rolled down the window and let the sour fart stench escape. We got gas, the other kind, about an hour later, and I told Leo I could drive the rest of the way home. When we crossed the state line, the fellow in the back said, What's that smell? We all sniffed. Oh, he answered himself. It's just New Jersey. We laughed, and it was all good. Later, I saw a bumper sticker that read, Be the change you want to see in the world. Trying my best, I beamed. Like, for real. 